Hi, Fresh Head listeners. It's Will here. Before we start the show today, I wanted to share some really exciting news. Together with the Brazilian Campaign for the Right to Education, we've recently started a new Portuguese language podcast called Educa. The show is hosted by Rui da Silva and Andresa Palanda, and brings together academics and activists from across the Lusophone-speaking world to discuss contemporary issues in education. It's like Fresh Ed, but in Portuguese. So if you speak Portuguese, please check it out. New episodes will air monthly. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we think about the power of ideas and imagine what life might look like after capitalism. With me is Tim Jackson. In his new book, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, Tim shows the limits of the dominant metaphors used to explain our current world and argues for new metaphors to help imagine a sustainable, just, and creative future. But it does mean that this power of creativity exists in all of us. And and I think that many senses, I think, in which materialism and consumerism systematically suppress that creativity. The weight of materialism from us is one of the clearest ways of seeing this enormous human potential that comes through creativity. Tim Jackson is the director of the Center for Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity and professor of sustainable development at the University of Surrey. Tim Jackson, welcome to Fresh Ed. It's uh, it's great to be here, Will. So can you tell me a little bit about what the power of a metaphor is? A metaphor is a is a way of using language that, that evokes, if you like, a different part of the brain. <laughs> it, it evokes um, much more the right-hand side of the brain, the creative side of the brain, because it's it's immediately doing something which connects uh, something in the real world to a to an image, which may not be the same thing at all. You may not even know why that link is there, but the power of metaphor is really to kind of almost to connect the left and the right brains, because it connects us from the the bit of the a bit of our brain that's thinking about the world right now mm. to a set of of creative images that allow us to then interpret that left brain idea in in a very different way. And so metaphor is very powerful for telling stories, for creating narratives, for enhancing our understanding of the world in in a way that isn't just about logic, rationality and statistics, but is about poetry, emotion and feeling. And, and, And that's why I think metaphor is a very powerful way of thinking about stuff generally. So it's, you know, it can definitely help us understand that, you know, the current world we live in, but can metaphors also help us imagine different worlds, different futures? Absolutely. I think, I think so. I mean, I think, um, you know, in a way that, that power of imagination is, is probably our, our deepest resource Mm -hmm. in thinking about how to navigate the kinds of challenges that we have at the moment. You know, we, we are inevitably locked in a kind of a worldview, our own view of what the world looks like right now. We're, we're cultured into it we're socialized into it from a very young age and we and and we don't we're we're also sort of blind to it we don't see where our own cultural prejudices lie because they exist as a background they almost seem like you know bricks and mortar they seem like the reality of our world they seem immutable those assumptions about what the economy looks like what our town looks like what the world is going to look like in the future 
and and it's the breaking out of that 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 is so desperately needed when we want to think about a different kind of future mm. and the best the best way to break out of that really is this power of imagination and the use of metaphor narrative poetry um, music even actually is a fantastic way to free our creativity from the if you like the kind of the prison of now <laughs> prison and prism you know we look at the now through a particular prism and it becomes a sort of prison um, because it it captures us in its sense of permanence and that permanence of course is a complete illusion because because things change dramatically mm. over time and and as we've seen in our lifetimes over the last year those changes can be very very profound indeed so what are some of the sort of metaphors and stories and, you, you know, how are we being socialized into the, the current sort of world system today, the, the sort of capitalist system? You know, what are the metaphors that we commonly hear and assume to be true and, in a sense, universal? Well, I think you could almost think of capital itself as a metaphor. Hmm. Um, the original use of the term came from the Latin capitus, capita. I can't remember exactly what the ending is, but it basically meant the head. And it was about counting the heads, the number of heads of cattle that you had in the field to, hmm. to, to give an impression of the stock of your wealth counted as the animals that you owned. And so, you know, capital is, is itself a metaphor. And it's a metaphor, when you think about it, it's a metaphor that tells a story about numbers, statistics, and, and a very particular kind of wealth. And, and in doing that, you know, we, we've, in creating a capitalism in which everything is interpreted in terms of capital, you know, we have physical capital, we have financial capital, we're now encouraged to talk about natural capital. Human capital. Uh, and and human capital and social capital, we've actually metaphorized our entire world through a kind of statistical um, analogy to to something that really bears no relevance to the kinds of things we're talking about when we're talking about social interactions or human potential or, or even the the dimensions of the natural hmm. world. So it's it's a and 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 economics does this very very powerfully. And we talk, you know, we talk consistently about the bottom line, for example, as as a metaphor for, you know, when it gets when you come to the bottom line, this is what matters. The bottom line is the line in a profit and loss statement, which tells you how much profit you've got. And yet we use that metaphor throughout our lives. And, and we sort we talk about things like, you know, I'm, let, let me cash it out for you. Yeah. <laughs> Cashing it out for you is, again, an economic metaphor. And we learn these metaphors. They become part of the language of everyday life. And we use them consistently without realizing that their power in our minds is quite substantial because they come from a certain place. They're associated with a certain rationality. Much of that rationality belongs to a left brain view of the world. And it curtails our ability to think in visionary terms about the future when we don't depart from that language and when we don't allow imagination, metaphor, creativity to to, to give us the signpost to a different kind of journey. There was a wonderful um, example of this a few years ago. It was a couple of decades ago now, actually, a, a little book, tiny little book called Human Scale Development. And it was developed by uh, a Chilean economist called Manfred Max Neef. And the way they did it actually was fascinating because they he was a, he was a Chilean economist looking at rural communities where many of the metaphors of economics made no sense much of the language made no sense and the subsistence farming and the poverty and the and the needs to c create a livelihood under very harsh circumstances was the challenge that he was looking at 
and he was sponsored by the Tailberg Foundation in, in Sweden to do to come up with a sort of view of development that was relevant to these needs. And he got together a, a group of economists and sociologists and political scientists and um, and indeed representatives of NGOs and civil society organizations. And they all got together for, uh, I think it was a week or so in Sweden only. And, and the rules of the game were very simple. You could not use any economic terms whatsoever. You, you had to come up with, in thinking about this development challenge, you had to talk about it without talking in economic terms. And how did it go? It was extraordinarily powerful. I mean, it's a kind of nice light mm. blue color and it's called human scale development. And, and it, it has been cited so many times, that little book, because it kind of provides a really powerful idea that what people are trying to do in their lives is satisfy certain kinds mm. of needs. And that's obviously not a new idea. You can talk about Abraham Maslow, who talked about the hierarchy of needs. And, and actually what they, what they did in this little group was sort of depart from that hierarchy and say, you know, we have lots of different kinds of needs and they all sit side by side. But we're also trying to satisfy those needs. And so he created a kind of matrix of needs versus satisfiers. And he created a language where, where satisfaction doesn't necessarily always occur, that you can have a need, you can seek to satisfy it, but actually it can be a pseudo-satisfier in the sense, for example, you know, that, that shopping can be a pseudo-satisfier of the need for affection, consolation, or, or even social yeah. So materialism in a way is not necessarily a way always to satisfaction. Exactly, exactly. It opens up this possibility that actually much of our satisfaction beyond those very, very fundamental needs of, of food and housing, um, many of those needs are psychological and social in nature. And, and we choose in society or we're, we're persuaded in society to satisfy or attempt to satisfy many of those needs with material things. And they're very poor satisfiers mm. of the underlying needs. So it's, you know, that was a it really, I think, a very good example of, of what you were suggesting, that, that, you know, you take away the easy ability to use a familiar language to describe a problem. You force yourself into a different view of what's happening and, and even exclude the language that you're, you would normally use. And suddenly you come up with this very, very creative mm. solution, which allows you to talk about real people's problems in rural, poor areas where livelihoods and subsistence is the is the order of the game and where the formal economy is not helping them at all and yet we sort of live in this world you know at least at the elite level in elite institutions and perhaps in northern or western countries where you know the language of economics is dominant and particularly this idea of growth that growth is always good how did some of these metaphors about growth come to be so dominant yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think there are lots of things going on. If you think about, I mean, if you think about the the, the language of economic growth um, that has been so dominant in the last probably seventy years, it came about partly during the Second World War. The Allied governments needed a way to figure out what how they could spend on the war effort, and so they drew up a system of accounts. And the GDP, the gross domestic product, which is the main measure of economic growth, really was a product of that. And I mean, I'm actually quite a big fan of the GDP, which kind of sounds surprising for someone who doesn't like growth 
very much um, because I think it's a very elegant construct. It, it ties together the production side of the economy with the consumption side, mm. the private side with the public side, investment with, with consumption. It allows you to ask very deep questions about how much debt there is and who pays that debt. You can talk about the distribution of people within that within that concept as well. So the framework of the national accounts that was developed at that time was an incredibly useful one. It proved its mm. usefulness during the war. And after the war, it became a kind of very, very conventional metric for the developed world first, but eventually everybody to, to try to figure out their accounts. And then out of that, out of that accounting framework came this idea that the more GDP you had, the better off things were all, all the way down the line. The more people could have in their pockets, the more industry could invest in the future, the more government could spend on its citizens. And, and that's also true to a certain extent. But in pursuing that goal of growth for its own sake over the next few decades, it became almost a, you know, a, a, um, a, a false god, I think you could probably say. It became, because it, it isn't at the end of the day, uh, GDP isn't actually a reflection of, of well-being in society. It's not a reflection of social progress. It's an accounting measure. So we had again, once, once again, sort of, you know, given over our vision of social progress to a metaphor that came from accounting much as we did with capitalism. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, Mariana Mazzucato's work has sort of shown about how, where do you draw the line around what is considered valuable and should be included in that accounting language, right? Mm. And, and so if you can sort of redraw the, the boundaries, you can actually have a very different understanding or different calculation of GDP. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is very powerful. Even, even within the remit of the GDP itself, what you do about the national boundary really, really matters. So you, there's two there's two measures. One's called the gross national product, and one's called the gross domestic product. And actually, the difference between them is massive because if if you're just basing your success on the gross domestic product, actually a lot of the wealth associated with that could just be flowing across the boundary to people who own enterprises in your country but are taking the profits hmm. out of them. So it, it, even that distinction, that very simple distinction between the gross national product and the gross domestic product hides an assumption about where wealth mm -hmm. is held, who owns it, and what matters. And that's you know that's a that's a place where things can go dramatically wrong. I mean, you asked you asked before about you know where did, where, where did it get so powerful? Um, it's not it's not easy to answer from that pure accounting perspective. From very early on, after the after the national accounts were set up. It became very dysfunctionalities mm -hmm. were what these difficulties were with the accounting framework and 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 one of the things one of the stories that I start with in the book actually is the story of Robert Kennedy's speech at the University of Cam Kansas in 1968 and so already by 1968 you know we knew that there were limitations to the GDP it measures neither our wit nor our courage neither our wisdom nor our learning neither our compassion devotion to our country it measures everything in short except that which makes life worthwhile mm. that was in the the the, the punchline of, of of robert kennedy's speech that day in the university of kansas and it's almost like we've known this for 50 something years and yet it still has a power so your your question about that you know why does it have such a gripping power on us is is, is a very interesting one it's hard 
it's kind of hard to answer. You know, once you set up the wrong measure and you've set up your yardstick and you're following mm. that yardstick, you're, you know, you're in an uncritical frame of mind and you begin to even game the system according to that yardstick so that you come out if you have the power in society as best you can in relation mm. to it. And, and, and it seems to be an, in exactly the way that we were talking about at the beginning, it seems to be a hardwired feature of the society and the economy that we live in it seems like bricks and mortar it seems like that's the way the world works and and everybody makes the same assumption everybody talks about growth it becomes almost like a mantra it, it assumes a, a quasi religious quality right and to get growth it's you know everyone is competing with each other which is somehow seen as natural and that you know, the materialism that sort of increases GDP is seen as actually something we desire and want and is, is the, 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 the definition of what a good life is, is through that materialistic sort of definition. And then there's also that element of, you know, you have to deny all of these other aspects of life that, you know, maybe materialism isn't actually making you happy in the end, but you just have to sort of live with this denial to, to continue on promoting and advancing this this myth of perpetual limitless economic growth yeah i, I think that's right denial denial becomes a, a really important part of of the system um, um and as you say we're kind of denial we're denying lots of things we're denying the damage to the planet we're denying the suffering of other people M most fundamentally maybe we're denying the other parts of ourselves that aren't counted in terms of material consumption and 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 that interestingly you know that's one of the things that really struck me is that idea was at the heart of that speech at the university of kansas although it's become a kind of poster speech for a critique of the statistic of the gdp it inspired for example the oecd's beyond gdp initiative actually when you read the speech you find that what he's talking about is something much more fundamental it's talking about who we are as people what kind of society we want to be in it's talking it's, it's beginning exactly that conversation that that i was sort of aiming to stimulate in post-growth but also aiming to show um that this fount of of knowledge and wisdom and learning within our history of ideas provides us a, f a fundamental support for thinking differently about the world. There mm. were lots of people who, who were, if you like, outside the matrix, thinking outside the box, counterculturally presenting ideas over long periods of time that are all immensely relevant to where we find ourselves now. So talking about now is really an interesting aspect because of the pandemic, right? I mean, so yes, a lot of these ideas obviously have had their origins decades ago, as you're bringing up with Bobby Kennedy's speech. But how has the pandemic, in a sense, sort of revealed a lot of the deficiencies of some of the metaphors and thinking that we have that, you know, about economic growth and about competition and about materialism? How has and what it means to live a good life? I mean, how has the pandemic sort of upended some of these metaphors that we commonly live with? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the the two almost two separate questions there. Really, mm. I mean, in terms of the in terms of the central uh, kind of economic challenge, um, you know, it really struck me very forcefully that 
and I, I had been working, you've got to sort of understand, I've been working on this for quite a long time. I've watched it, I've seen it happening. I've seen how capitalism um, in, in particular creates this kind of tension between, between certain kinds of work and the promotion of growth. Um, and it's, it's a little bit difficult to explain, but basically it was revealed very, very clearly in the pandemic that the, the people who had had the most precarious lifestyles, who had been the most poorly paid, who had the least security in the workforce, turned out to be the people that we needed most through the pandemic. They were the, the, the nurses, the nurses, the carers, the, the distribution workers, the, the frontline workers, the, the teachers to some extent, the, the um, uh, cleaners, you know, people. The people delivering food. Delivering stuff, but but cleaning the surfaces because actually suddenly clean surfaces really really matter, and yet you know those were the kinds of jobs that were kind of denigrated, poorly paid, and always being subject to this kind of pursuit of increasing productivity. You know, trying to get more and more out of these people each each year, each hour of their working lives, working you know, seeing more and more patients, teaching more and more students. Um, uh, working faster and faster and you know the thing that had struck me about that before the pandemic is actually how fundamentally difficult those jobs become in a society that's driven by growth competition efficiency profit maximization and labor productivity in particular mm -hmm. so labor productivity the productivity of our time in the economy is almost like the pinnacle of how all of those metaphors have been have driven us towards you know this position where people who can't produce output that's measured as countable contributions to the GDP don't have a voice in society mm -hmm. and and these were the people i mean this is the extraordinary lesson these were the people who turned out to matter most so this is to me is you know it's not a it's it is an abdication of responsibility of course you know we we, we should have looked after those people better they were always to our lives they, they mm. provide the contribution the quality and there's a characteristic of quality which is really really important which is that it's the time they spend in those acts that creates the value um, to our lives so the time that the nurse pays with their plays spends with their with their patient the time that the carer spends with their clients the time that the teacher spends with their pupil the time that social workers spend in the community the time that craftsmen spend producing something beautiful mm -hmm. the time that artists spend creating you know these are all very time intensive activities and there's a there's a wonderful quality of that time intensiveness with which is that if you employ more and more of your society in these activities that seem to contribute to the quality of their lives then you can employ more people because there's actually no there's no deficit for employment. There's there's a huge demand for this kind of work in society. And yet capitalism and the structure of the market and the pursuit of labor productivity systematically makes that bit of the economy the most difficult part of the economy to maintain. Hmm. I mean I think the other the other part of, of your question is about how we began to you know think about our own priorities and 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 there I, I would again say you know something very fundamental went on because we realized very very early on and governments had to realize too that at a certain point 
health becomes more important than wealth. And indeed, you know, we made very early on compromises in terms of the GDP, compromises in terms of wealth, compromises in terms of growth, precisely because of this priority, actually, that health has um, when push comes to shove. It's the thing, the top priority. It's very interesting when I um, was doing the work for Prosperity Without Growth, my previous book, you know, I was looking evidence of what people think prosperity is and almost invariably when you talk to people about prosperity you know health is so fundamental to prosperity that to have sort of forgotten that to squeezed it out of our system in pursuit of of a measure which is you know dimly related to health at times um is 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 um is a sort of systematic failing and i think you know i think um I think there's a there's a something fundamental belief beneath that, which is that when you when we think about growth and we think about the accumulation of wealth, it's really a story about about having more. Hmm. It's it, we're being sold the idea that more and more is the is the place to be and the and the way to go and that it's possible and that even if we don't get it, our kids will have it. It's a it's a kind of mantra for our society that that more is where we're aiming for health interestingly is very very different health is actually about balance you know you mm. can you sometimes you do need more take something basic like food you know in the poorest countries in the world nutrition matters having more matters but the world health organization you know has now told us that more people die from diseases of affluence from over nutrition than die from undernutrition in the world in other words, mm. just as having too little is wrong when you're thinking about the balance of health, having too much is wrong as well. And this sense, in fact, that health provides us with a kind of different metaphor, a metaphor which rejects the mantra of more and says rather that, you know, what we should be aiming for is a kind of appropriate balance to maintain the health of ourselves as physical organisms, of our of our mental worlds, of our community, of our social relationships, and indeed our relationships with the planet. I think that's a, it's a really good example of imagining a, a different world using different metaphors, right? And so that idea of balance becomes a really nice way to begin to reimagine a future. And, and maybe we've started seeing it because of the pandemic, just like Bobby Kennedy started seeing it decades ago, and others, as you bring up in your book, um, other people, of course, in different all over the world have seen this and understood this. It's it's not really uh, it's not new in a sense, right? Um, these ideas have been there. Uh, it's always been really important to me where ideas come from, and I think that's kind of got a little bit lost in modernity, and it's happened for a very specific reason, <laughs> which is which is the rise of you know, kind of instant information and social media. And social media is a propagator of ideas that's so very, very fast that the origins and the roots of those ideas get lost. And sometimes there's actually, you know, in the rush forwards towards these new ideas where we think we're inventing new stuff, we lose sight of the fact that, as you say, there is almost this very, mm. very long pedigree of thought. And to me, I might be wrong, but 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 I but I feel that's important. I feel... I feel that's important to bring into the way we think about the future because it's a it's an enormous resource to us if we think about it from a social perspective. 
If we think about it too much from an individual perspective, where everybody wants to be the one with the clever idea and the fastest response on Twitter, you know, Twitter storm after Twitter storm, recycling ideas. But if we think about it in this sense of a pedigree in a society, we get a, a kind of a longer term view of the history of ideas and of the potential for change. I, and I agree. I think that that history is a really important way to think about ideas and, and the power of ideas and how those ideas might look differently at different moments in different contexts um, and sort of putting ourselves within that historical perspective. I think, it, you know, we're not so unique after all in a way. Um, but I guess the, the question I was coming to was about, is it possible for these metaphors to actually change material reality or does material reality have to change before these new metaphors can actually take hold? Right? So the, the question is how the focus on ideas and metaphor as being a way to imagine a new future, you know, is it really about changing what's happening in, in the material world today? Um, that's, that's a lovely question, and, and it's, I think it's very, very complicated. I mean, I, I think one of the premises of, of the book is that ideas have enormous power, metaphors have enormous power. Mm. And I think, you know, some of what we were talking about at the top of the show really underlines that, how those metaphors enter mm. our lives and create structures which which almost in, imprison us in a particular a particular way of thinking about the world and prevent change happening. And and in that context, it seems to me, you know, kind of breaking out of that cage becomes incredibly important and metaphors are the way to do that. And when you look at the development of ideas, mm. you see how important those metaphors are. So we think, you know, for example, that, that evolutionary theory is a is a, a kind of very fact based objective theory. But when you look under the surface of evolution, you find actually it adopted many of the metaphors that came from capitalism itself at a mm. point in time at which capitalism was a kind of really quite ruthless beast, you know, tearing up and uprooting communities and people's lives and creating enormous wealth in one place and enormous poverty in another, creating pollution that was, you know, beyond mm. the scale of anything that we're kind of looking at now in terms of urban air quality. And, and, and it, it was, it was, you know, it was in, in adopting the metaphors of capitalism, evolutionary theory privileged the idea of competition as the basis for how we work. Mm. And in doing that, it legitimized the idea of competition within capitalism. So there was this kind of circularity of ideas between the physical sciences and the, and the economic sciences, between the natural sciences and the human sciences, which locked us into a particular way of thinking about things. And, and one of my other characters in the book, Lynn Margulis, was, you know, incredibly mm. articulate about that. And she looked, you know, instead of looking at the law of the jungle, nature, red in tooth and claw, she looked at the ways in which species cooperate with each other, in which symbiosis occurs, in which collaboration is the basis for, 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 for living. And she said, you know, if you look, if you look, if you just look for the competition, of course, you will find it. But if you look in these other places, you find the most extraordinary collaboration, the most extraordinary cooperation. And so, you know, your question, why, that's why your question is so difficult in a way, because the world is not a sweet, fluffy place in which everybody collaborates and, and you know, we're all friendly to each other. It's, that's the utopian vision that we have of the world. 
But at the same time, you know, Ernest Becker put this in a lovely way. He called, you know, creation is a nightmare spectacular. Mm. It's built on the on the planet on a planet soaked for millions of years with the blood of all its species. You know, it's this the winner takes all the 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 strong eat the weak the 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 kind of the law of the jungle and the war of all against all as thomas hobbes called it is what the foundation of of our of our civilization is and and yet and so you can't and it's very difficult to deny that i think it's wrong to deny that in a way but set against that is a set of ideas who have who have been subjugated by the single-mindedness of competition mm. and, and of placing competition at the heart of our economic systems, our institutions, our financial regulation, our education system, and even our social relationships. Mm. Mm. And, and, and that's why, you know, that's where I think you have to accept both things. You have to, you have to sort of say that the metaphors do reflect some part of reality, but they never reflect the, the whole reality and and in settling on metaphors we restrict our vision to the worlds that we could be, be working towards and moving towards the other you know the another issue that some i think about when we think of metaphors and imagining new futures and you know really some of the you know utopian thinking which has also a very long history is sort of who gets to even imagine a future who gets to create metaphors I, well, in fact, that book you brought up earlier is an interesting example, right? Because it is these these sort of rural Chilean farmers, subsistence farmers, and they were given the opportunity to imagine a future. And it was obviously a really powerful book. But yet, you know, how often does that happen? How often is it those who are living in really difficult material conditions and realities, are they given the opportunity and chances to actually imagine completely new futures that you know, have power and the ability to then change our material world, right? I mean, it's 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 a question of who gets to even imagine. Mm. I think that's that's really important. I mean, one of Margulis's point was that the world of of Darwinism and competition was a very masculine, male oriented mm. view on the world, and that the exclusion of women from science or the difficulty that women had in 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 participating in science was had led to an over masculinized version of of science and indeed of economics and our sense of the economy so and, and that's i think a realization that we're beginning to have at the moment that you know these views that have forged not just western civilization but mm. an almost globalized culture you know come from uh, a very small set of people looking at the world in a in a very particular way from a particular viewpoint and with a with a perhaps inappropriate mm -hmm. allocation of power so this this one there's one thing that kind of troubles me about that i guess because one of my one of my arguments in the book is um you know that in freeing ourselves from these ideas and then finding our way towards a different kind of world that the 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 arts is a place which can lend us the creativity um, of seeing into the future. And and you find when you begin to look at the arts, of course, that that's a place where 
this debate about power and who has artistic creativity, who has access to artistic creativity, whose voices are heard, whose art matters, is a is an incredibly um, well, it's a fascinating one, but it's mm. also quite divided in opinion. So there are some who would argue that actually art always follows power, and all of our great examples of great artists are built on the back of power. And and even the the poor who were the poor artists at the time were patronised by people in power. And sometimes that power was used, you know, to that power was used to support artists to support the worldview that allowed those people mm. to maintain power. So these kind of stories around, you know, creating visions of imperial grandeur through musical symphonies, for example, you know, is, is, is one of those places where, where my appeal to the kind of creative, the, the inherent creative ability in all of us to envisage change and to, and to engage in art as an element of prosperity becomes problematized because it's, you know, when you look at the things that we really, really love and adore, we find, we, we do find quite often that they're colonized mm -hmm. by power. Um, and so, so it's not a, it's not an easy one to resolve. There's an example in the book, which, which is really quite profound, actually, which is of, of a, a blues singer called Nina Simone. And I use, I use this uh, anecdote of an event which took place three days after Martin Luther King was shot in 1968. And, um, and she had written, she and a couple of other musicians had written a song called Why? The King of Love is Dead. And, and Nina Simone is that kind of rags to riches story. She's a story of someone who came from nowhere. She was a black woman. She was mm. excluded from power. And yet through the power of art itself, you know, she created this, this uh, wonderful kind of legacy of blues music. And this one moment in particular, which I, when I was writing the book, I just watched over and over again because it's such a wonderful a wonderful moment where she's doing this tribute concert to Martin Luther King three days after he's shot and in the middle of this song why she just breaks completely from the music and she goes into this sort of ad lib course um, about life and loss and death and justice and 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 um, and hope and and then you know with this one single piano chord then resumes the song towards the end and it's the most incredibly moving thing and I wanted to put more of it in the book and the reason I couldn't is because um, it doesn't belong to Nina Simone. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to the public. It belongs to a certain set of people who've claimed power over the rights to the creative output that <laughs> Nina Simone produced. And actually, it would have breached that oh copyright gosh. of someone who is long dead to put, the, to put it into the book. So, I, you know, it's there. And, and you can go. I've, one of the things I did in the mm -hmm. book was put a lot of footnotes to, to some of these things that I was looking at. So you can go there and look at it. But it tells... You know, it's it's a it's a really, you know, it's almost inverted story, if you like, of of how power uh, colonizes the ability to speak and and even yeah, the reproduction the, of that. The turning world. an idea into private property. <laughs> yeah, turning yeah. creativity. I mean, into that is yeah, trying to imagine futures, but then being pulled back by the dominant narratives and metaphors and powers that be. Yeah. In the ideal world, and we can sort of be a little bit utopian in thinking about this, this creativity, I believe, is a birthright for everybody. And uh, that doesn't mean to say that, that everybody is a Mozart or everybody is a Nina Simone, but it does mean that this power of creativity exists in all of us. And, and I think, you know, there's a sense in which materialism, 
there are many senses, I think, in which materialism and consumerism systematically suppress that creativity. Mm-hmm. And that was also one of the kind of themes in the book that actually lifting that the weight of materialism from us is one of the clearest ways of seeing this enormous human potential that comes through creativity. Tim Jackson, thank you so much for joining Fresh Head. I think there's a lot to think about and a lot of new ways of seeing our world and our future. And hopefully we do get it to that post-growth world that you have begun to imagine. It's, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Will. I mean, I the, the point of the book for me is to provoke that conversation. And, and, and I have the sense, too, that post-growth is not a destination, it's a journey. Mm. And so I hope that the book kind of helps us along that way. Tim Jackson is a professor at the University of Surrey. His new book, published by Polity Press, is Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism which will be released in the USA on May 21st. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, Ing Jung Cho, Obafemi Ngunle, Diang Jian, Annabella Afra Boteng, Anya Lin, and Phyllis Che Mensa. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the Shakdev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brown, and I'll be back next week.